Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Renee Powers here. And today I'm so excited to be talking with Tess Gundy. Her new book, The Rabbit Hutch, just came out. And we are sitting down today to discuss small town Indiana, honestly, (laughs) where we are both from. Tess, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So why don't you, before we get started, tell us a little bit about The Rabbit Hutch, this your debut novel. Yeah, so The Rabbit Hutch, um, it takes place in a fictional post-industrial town in Indiana called Vacaville, and it follows a group of characters over the course of three days one summer as their lives violently collide. You have that down to a science, don't you? Well done. (laughs) You have to say it a lot by now. It took me like five years to figure out how to summarize it, but Because you have been working on it for five or six years, correct? That's right. Yeah. It's been, I guess it was six years ago that I started it. Fantastic. And here it is. Do you feel a sense of relief or is it dread? What's the feelings out in the world? Well, at the time of this recording, I guess we're a week out from publication. So at this point, it is um, mostly just an effort not to think about it. I've tried to have a kind of healthy dissociation. It just was released in the UK and that was a nice kind of ease into publication. Tess and I share a hometown. We um, are both from South Bend, Indiana. Neither of us live there anymore. Tess, you went to Notre Dame and I went to St. Mary's, which is the women's college at Notre Dame. And I have a soft spot for South Bend, even though I'm not there anymore. And you probably couldn't pay me to live there anymore, but it is something that I'm still really connected to. There's there's so much in your book um, that is familiar to me because Vaca Vale is so similar to South Bend in a lot of ways. And I want to read what one of your characters, what, what of his impressions of Vaca Vale is, because I think it speaks to what folks unfamiliar with small town Rust Belt Midwestern towns think. So he says, this is your character Moses. Um, He says, he observes a wasteland of factories, construction, and dead grass on Google Maps. Moses scrolls through the search engine results, validating his suspicion that Vaca Vale is yet another American blemish, one of those disposable expired towns responsible for electing the demagogues who reduce their country to a trash fire, a town that needs a good babysitter and a lot of education. And I read that and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what outsiders think. And it's wrong. Right, exactly. I think Moses was the only outsider in the book. And he's also from an incredibly elite um, upbringing. I mean, his mother is a was a celebrity. He grew up very, very wealthy in Los Angeles. And so he was an opportunity for me to stage a lot of the really problematic and just false conceptions of the Midwest that I was encountering when I moved to New York or when I, you know, when I'm in, now I live in LA. 
And I think these are, these are impressions. And of course that they're sort of amplified in Moses's perspective, but I, I encounter them in people all the time. And even when we have one of our own kind of in the spotlight, like I'm thinking of Mayor Pete Buttigieg was the mayor of South Bend. I, I, I remember seeing so many headlines. It's like, why is Mayor Pete so popular or so beloved when his town is dying? And it's, mm. it's difficult for me to see that because even though the industries that made these Rust Belt towns are no longer there. There's still so much vibrancy and there's so many people there that are still doing incredible, important, life-giving work to that, to that city. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to set the rabbit hutch in, in a town so similar to South Bend and what that meant for you and kind of what were you working through in that process? Yeah, well, I think part of the reason why people have such um, a stereotyped and kind of flattened understanding of this region is that there are just very few narratives that take place there. And yet it's home to millions of people. And I find it to be a place that's just as kind of complex and interesting and suited for narrative as any other. And yet growing up, I don't think I read a single book that took place in a city like mine. I certainly didn't see anything any movie set there. And so when I was little, I thought that was a reason to never set my own fiction in a, in a town like mine. I just thought, I guess fiction doesn't happen in places like South Bend. As I grew up, I realized I, I am actually suited to contribute a narrative. I mean, obviously I know what this place is like and I have one perspective. It's never gonna be a comprehensive perspective. And, and I hope that others start contributing narratives too because the thing I wrote was just one. There's a very specific flavor of this again, quote unquote, dying industrial town that you really tap into. And there is, for instance, I don't know, I, reading a book like yours where I, it, so much of it is so familiar, I think just adds such a la layer to it for me as a reader. The reading experience was so enjoyable because I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. And I, I mentioned to you before we started that there is a pet food plant near a high school and the only people who lived in that neighborhood knows that smell. <laughs> Oh yeah, I did soccer and we would have practice, you know, twice a day in the summers when it was like 95 degrees Gross. and we would have, and they didn't stop production in the summer. So we would do like these eight mile sprints with like the scent of the essentially fish guts, Yeah, 95 degree heat. It was, you never forget that. You never, ever do. <laughs> that's one of those, it's like truth is stranger than fiction, right? Like that's in the book because that happens, but even things like you've got a a car manufacturer that is no longer there which is clearly to me based on Studebaker and AM General and Hummer which were both made in um, South Bend as well and the thing about these towns that we don't read about that we have all of these big feelings about that we don't understand is that reading your book I was thinking is this South Bend or is this Mishawaka is this Osceola is this Laporte Elkhart and the answer I ended up on was, well, yes, it's all of those and it's none of those. There's no question there. <laughs> no, I think that is something that's important because a lot of times when I'm, when I'm talking to people now and doing press for this, people assume that it's essentially just South Bend. I, I specifically didn't set it in South Bend because I also, you know, Notre Dame is there, St. Mary's is there. There's a bunch of other kind of industries and economies in South Bend. And I think this was part of Vacaville was a thought experiment. Like what if there wasn't another source of employment that could have absorbed some of the economic pain 
and shock when when Studebaker closed because you know in lots of cities like Flint, Michigan, and Gary, Indiana, and Youngstown, Ohio, there there really wasn't another major employer that was just already there and ready to absorb the impact. And so I wanted to be able to take things from all of these cities, which you know if you grow up in the region, you're familiar with many of them, and you know that while each is distinct, there are definitely patterns. It was important when I was writing this to make a town that was a little bit every town and none of these towns. But what I think is done so deftly is that kind of, we'll call it city trauma of an industry leaving a city, is that it does ripple. You get this ripple effect um, throughout generations. And you do that, you show that so deftly. So many of them haven't been impacted directly. Like they weren't laid off from a factory leaving, but you know, their parents' parents were, and that caused, you know, addiction that caused houselessness that caused poverty of some sort. And then we see um, at the center is actually four kids, but one girl in particular who is aged out of the foster care system. And that's again, a narrative we don't hear too much about, especially in these cities. And I, I knew foster kids right in my, in my upbringing. And I don't know, I just think that the way that you've handled and you've illuminated this story of how I I don't have any other phrase other than city trauma impacts generations after after it leaves and I don't know if there's an answer to like how do we stop that but what are your thoughts on it when I was writing the novel I was really just interested in observing those kinds of ripple effects um, and the very interpersonal I I guess another way of saying it's a very personal consequences of these very impersonal kind of macro decisions Because yeah, in my neighborhood, the consequences of the economic decline in South Bend were not rendered in abstract statistics. They were rendered in really personal, immediate, particular consequences on the lives of the bodies and souls around me. And so I I wasn't really interested in like trying to offer solutions to economic depression in these places. Um, Obviously there is one solution that the town, the, you know, the fictionalized town is testing out, which is this revitalization plan. But the main character, you know, insofar as there's a protagonist, her name is Blondine and she she really opposes this plan because she thinks that it's like a lot of kind of revitalization plans. I think in in reality, it, it's not really connected to the people in the community that are already there. It's more interested in sort of bringing in new people, appealing to those people, you know, trying to set up like a totally foreign industry. In this case, they, they're trying to get tech people. They're trying to attack, attract tech people into the, into the city. And they're destroying one of the only natural wonders left in the city, which is this big, it's kind of a big forest in order to um, make luxury housing for these, you know, imagined tech workers. And so I think often when these towns are testing out solutions, the main failure is, is that they don't, they don't include the community in a meaningful way. I do want to shift gears a little bit because you went to Notre Dame. I'm assuming you grew up Catholic. I did as well. Again, so much familiarity in the Catholic culture in this book as well. It just kind of permeates. It's a little bit of everywhere. But what I love is Blondine's fascination with Catholic 
woman mystics. Can you talk a little bit why you chose to have this character dive into a very like specific, and all of my friends in high school also dove into like very specific parts of Catholicism too, which is why it was familiar to me. So why, why the mystics? Why was she going that direction? Yeah, well, you're spot on. I was raised super Catholic and my mom was actually in a convent in her 20s and my dad had seriously considered the priesthood at one point. And um, yeah, I went to Catholic school until grad school from preschool through college. So I think by the time, I mean, this is just... I'm not sure how relevant this is, but like by the time I was 15, I was vehemently rejecting the church and a lot of everything that came with it. So I was actually really surprised to see Catholicism appear in this novel without being completely inundated with the bitterness and and the sort of critiques that I felt toward the religion. I think part of that had to do with like, I had some distance from the town by the time I started this, I had some distance from the religion and I needed that in order to, to think about it with anything other than like a sense of entrapment. Yeah. And, and like a blistering awareness of all the hypocrisies and all of the, all of the damage that this, that this institution has done for me, I was, I was a very, very, very religious, very devout child. My mother's kind of spirituality is very invested in miracles and signs and visions and wonders. And for me, that was really exciting as a child because it was kind of inseparable from magic and other supernatural phenomenon. I think one of the things that was so compelling to me as a child was within this highly, highly patriarchal culture, once in a while, we would receive um, a story about a woman in the church who had this kind of supernatural power. And to me, that they were sort of like witches. They were like, they were a little bit feared by the men in the church. They achieved some amount of, of independence and liberation, even within their, you know, religious communities. They seemed to me to kind of represent the only path toward true, like female freedom in the church without actually leaving the church. And so in the book, like the fact that Blondine is, is drawing on Catholic figures is kind of just an accident of her birth. It's like, if she happened to be born in another place with a different religion, she would latch onto different figures. These are just the ones that she was offered, but she's drawn to them precisely because, and she's not religious, I should say, but she's drawn to them precisely because they've figured out how to, in her mind, like how to transcend their circumstances without actually physically leaving them. Blondine is someone who doesn't see a way out of her, the cage, the many, many cages that she's in. She doesn't see a way out of her town. She had to drop out of high school. She doesn't have any money, but she can imagine a kind of spiritual cognitive transcendence or liberation. And that to her represents like the ultimate freedom. And that's why she's drawn to these women. And I usually ask all of our authors and I didn't ask you, and I don't know why, but now I think it makes a really good ending question. So we will end with, is this book feminist? And if so, how would you define that? You know, it's interesting because my editor at Knopf, John Freeman, when he first sent his, his very first email to me after they acquired the book, he called it a feminist Ulysses. And I had never thought about the book as feminist before, but not because I, I thought of it as like not feminist, just because I think feminism is such a fundamental aspect of my worldview. I think that the awareness of ge- the gendered management of power, it infiltrates every single action I make every single day of my life. And so I think like most women, you just cannot inhabit the world without that awareness. And it was almost, it was like so fundamental to my worldview that I didn't, I didn't even consider this book like an explicit effort 
to make that visible. I do think that it is paying attention to the gendered management of power within its world. I do think that it features a woman who defy, who kind of refuses to be defined by the value systems that the patriarchy has put in place for her. And so insofar as whether or not a book is feminist, I'm not sure if I'm the one that makes that call, but I do know that it's influenced obviously by my own, I think, deeply rooted feminism. I'm just going to use my friend Tracy her definition she hosts the podcast the stacks um she says i think a book is feminist if a, it allows a woman to write whatever the hell she wants <laughs> i like that I really and like you know that. what yes but also <laughs> i there's so much to me that in this book that it's clear it was clear to me that it's something that you embody you identify and your characters are grappling with as well i just wrote down the phrase gendered management of power because i think that is a brilliant way to do a succinct definition and i really like it so thank you for that tess this has been a delight i've got so many other questions but if we want to follow your work online where's the best way for our audience to do that um, my website is tessgunty.com and I'm on Instagram. It's my only social media and my name is Tess Gunty on there. Fantastic. We will link all that in the show notes. If you've got a book to recommend for our, author, or for our audience to read, what would you recommend? Any book? What are you reading or loving right now? Ooh, the first one that came to mind that I just adore is Luster by Raven Leilani. I know like pretty much everyone has read that book by now, but I would say if you haven't, you absolutely should. The collected works of Clarice Lispector. There's like a, a huge book that's a kind of collection of her short stories. She is an incredible feminist author and her work is really, it's just explosive. It's amazing. I think your work is explosive and I am so excited to see what you do next. Tess, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi friends. We've been asked before if we have a Patreon and we don't, not technically. But if you're looking to support us in that way, we do have a virtual community that's only $12 a month. You'll get access to book discussions, author chats, workshops, exclusive newsletters, blog posts, videos, and more. Connect with the feminist readers near you or just make new internet friends. There's even an app to make the experience as fun and convenient as possible. Head to feministbookclub.com join and select virtual membership or find a link in our show notes. We can't wait to meet you. So hi, this is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Jamie Brenner. She is the author of six novels. She grew up in suburban Philadelphia on Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz novels, and she joins us today to talk about her latest novel, Guilt. Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Excited to talk with you again. Yes. So I actually had the opportunity to interview Jamie for Blush, her wonderful novel that came out last year. And so I had the opportunity to ask her about what is her definition of feminism, which she shared was not apologizing and not asking for permission. So for guilt, I'm going to ask you and just for yourself, when is the last time you were unapologetic? I Every day I try to be unapologetic. It's never even just about work or even even as a mother. You know, I have to set boundaries with my children and say, I'm doing the best I can. And you have to understand that. I practice being unapologetic every single day. And that doesn't mean being selfish and it doesn't mean being careless. It really means finding a way to 
to take care of yourself as well as everyone else. And I don't think that's something we're necessarily taught right out of the gate. And I think the word unapologetic has gotten such a bad rap. As you were saying, you know, it's not being selfish or having an attitude, but it's actually setting the course for yourself so that you can be, you can present your best self and then other people can understand, you know, how they interact with you. Exactly. You know, it's like that when you're on an airplane and they say, in case of emergency, Mm -hmm. put your oxygen mask on first before you assist others. That's exactly what we have to do as we go through, you know, life. And what is guilt about? Guilt, which I just want to say, spell it, it's G-I-L-T. That's the spelling, which, you know, guilt is anything that has a gold coating. So it looks like gold, but underneath is a less valuable material. And then, of course, there's the guilt, G-U-I-L-T, which sounds the same, which is, you know, a very uncomfortable feeling of regret or remorse. Guilt is about a family that made their fortune selling diamond engagement rings, but all the sisters in the family are unlucky in love. That's the plot. But what it's really about is looking at our relationship with jewelry and what we consider valuable in life. When I was growing up, I was very much aggressively sold the idea that the most important piece of jewelry you'll ever own is a diamond engagement ring and that someone has to give that to you. But I realized as I went through life, my favorite pieces of jewelry are things that I just bought for myself along the way to mark experiences, milestones, a great summer. And it's very contrary to the way the notion of valuable jewelry was sold to me by the industry. And in guilt, we have two generations of jewelry designers. We have a young woman in her 20s who repurposes old material and collectibles, antiques, and she's trying to make things that are personal to the wearer, while her family has historically mined and sold very expensive diamonds. I always hold this notion as you were talking about the greatest piece of jewelry, particularly a woman can receive is a diamond engagement ring from someone she loves. I always hold the notion that I could put a ring on myself and, you know, shouldn't have to wait for an occasion to buy things that I enjoy. Now I'm not splurging or anything, but I, I have nice pieces that I love and I get to look at my, you know, either my earrings or rings or whatever and know that I bought it myself and I gave myself the opportunity to have these moments. Absolutely. And we're really living in a time when it's getting easier and easier to find these things because now you don't need a storefront on Fifth Avenue to sell jewelry. You know, you can go on Instagram and there's so many great yes. designers with all price points that are offering things that can have personal meaning and be very easy to acquire without you know, stressing yourself out. And in that way, we're in a really great moment of jewelry design and, and acquisition. But historically and I learned this researching the book, diamond engagement rings were not even a thing until about 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was a complete marketing 
fabrication by De Beers to move these stones that aren't inherently valuable. You know, emeralds used to be the coveted stone until modern day marketing. I got fascinated with the notion of people who buy these or acquire these super large stones. And then there are these cursed diamonds like the Hope Diamond or the Black Orlov. Is there such a thing as a cursed diamond or is it the sort of greed and avarice it, that it takes to acquire one that's a self-fulfilling prophecy and leads to bad results. So these are themes that I play with in guilt, but that I've been sort of observing and thinking about for a long time. I love the way that you write young women, that you give young women the, the permission to be dreamers, to be sort of captivated by possibility. And I really admired that with Gemma. She is learning about her family history. She's just graduated college when we really get to meet her. What characteristics do you want to give young women in your novels? Well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, when I grew up reading books by Jackie Collins and Judith Kranz, which were the inspiration for my novel Blush, which we talked about last summer, you know, those were the ultimate heroines to me. And it goes back to what you were saying before, not being apologetic and not asking permission if there's something you want in life to go after it. Our 20s are such an interesting time because we don't know so much, but a lot of us have a deep down feeling of what we truly hope to do or who we want to be. And that's a decade where the question is, are you going to go for it? How are you going to go for it? Um, what do you need to get there? And I try to write heroines who find the strength to follow their heart, even when the people in their lives are not making that easy for them. Dynasty and appearance are part of the novel. You talk about tabloids and how the sisters um, of the Pavlin family present themselves in the world. Uh, what inspired this for the novel, even as it's called guilt? I am very interested in, in family dynasties. And, you know, Tiffany & Co. was a family business. It started humbly and became this empire. Cartier, I find it interesting when there's a generation that innovates and creates something really bold and, and wonderful. And then it gets handed down. And often each subsequent generation brings less and less to the table, which is what happens to this jewelry family. You know, there was a great innovator at the helm. And by the time this book opens, the father of these three daughters has really gotten lazy. And so instead of innovating with the business, he takes his three daughters and as a publicity stunt, he says, the first of these three daughters to get engaged will be gifted the most important gem in the collection, 30 carat pink diamond called the electric rose. And once he pits these sisters against one another, nothing in the family is ever the same. There's also chosen family within the family. Like I think about Celeste and Gemma and how they're able to build a bond. And it kind of is like us against the world, particularly with their family. How did you build those dynamics? Well, I really do believe, I love that term, chosen family. And in my life, I've had imperfect relationships, let's say with my mother, but I have mother figures that I've met along the way. And they're like my chosen mothers. Provincetown, the setting for the book, 
or for a large part of the book is really a place where people can go and reset their lives, reinvent themselves, find like-minded people when maybe they haven't been able to find that in their hometowns. So I think figuring out who you want to surround yourself with is such an important step towards being who you want to be and, and finding happiness in the world. That's a really big part of all the books that I write. And I also love the setting of Provincetown compared to New York City, which this family has the trappings of success and wealth that makes New York what a lot of people dream of it to be. And then Provincetown is more of the grounding of what the family can, can be. And there's still just, there's pieces of wealth but it's a little bit more relaxed and more down to earth. Yes, there's a big contrast between New York City and Provincetown that worked really well to tell this particular story. Exactly what you said, New York is so much about appearance and it's so big and flashy and expensive and Provincetown is so unpretentious mm -hmm. and artistic and natural beauty with beaches and wildlife preserves. So one part of the story takes place in New York, but the transformation occurs when everyone ends up uh, assembling in Provincetown. Once again, you know, it's one of my favorite settings, but it particularly worked for this story because of the type of people and the place that it is. So continuing with family, I love the way that you wrote Elodie. And I loved, I think out of all the characters, I loved watching her arc the most. I think a lot of people will find her to be cold, but, but she's a character I think you get to have this great ride with. How did you develop her in particular? Well, you really honed in on it because originally, or there was a time during writing, writing this book when I was considering making her the main character. Hmm. Um, but Elodie to me is the most extreme example of someone who really loses a sense of what's important along the way in life. There are three sisters. One dies young, which isn't a spoiler. You find out on like page three. Mm -hmm. The two surviving sisters make very opposite choices from that point on. One is all about work and making money and raising her profile. That's Elodie. Um, to the exclusion of any real personal life or connection to her family or anyone aside from her, her work life. And her sister Celeste goes the opposite way. She turns her back on the business. She runs off to Provincetown and she wants nothing to do with the family legacy. Elodie has a lot to learn, even though she thinks she has things all figured out because she has not, she has shut out the things that are most important in life, which is relationship, which is being vulnerable to someone else, which is having someone who cares about you for who you are and not just for what you represent or um, who you are in society. So her arc is um, a very classic story of, you know, learning a life lesson late. And she's very honest. Her and Celeste have a conversation in the book and she's just like, look, this is how I see things. And I ended up agreeing with her. And so there's this honesty that I think the characters eventually come towards um, that's very refreshing for the story. Well, it's funny because the characters, when I write a character who says things as they see it and who are the most blunt or honest, 
are the ones that people have the hardest time mm-hmm. liking at first, which is so interesting to me that that blunt state of being is hard to take. But in the end, it really is a, a form of, of honesty that serves everyone. And it just takes time to come around and see that it's uh, not antagonism. It's just someone who's, as I said, unapologetic. So I'm glad that you enjoyed her. So there's happy endings, there's love, there's guilt, and there's a matter of what if. Like, what if I actually went for this dream or what if I didn't go for it? How did you want these elements to play in the novel? I wanted to show that when you're true to what's important to you, it tends to be the best path to take versus being reactionary acting out of anger, acting out of fear. Um, A lot of the traps we fall into as we suffer setbacks and disappointments in life. So all of the women in the book make bad decisions. And the reason they make bad decisions vary, but it's some version of fear or resentment or disappointment. And that is what has to be corrected over the course of this summer. What was your research process for the book? Like you talked about sort of the jewelry dynasties and of course, New York and Provincetown, which you've, you've um, spent a, a number of time at. Yes. What was your research process for the novel? Well, in terms of setting, you know, I've lived in New York and I've lived in Provincetown. So that part was was a no brainer, you know, that worked out. The challenge was, I really like to interview people and and see things firsthand when I'm researching. But because of COVID, I couldn't do that for this book. Um, Instead, I had to turn to nonfiction to give me all my information. But luckily, there's some fantastic nonfiction books about jewelry. And two in particular really shaped the story. One is called Stoned, how jewelry obsession and how desire shapes the world by Mm -hmm. Aja Radin. And the other is a book called Diving for Starfish by Sherry Burns. And they both really explore sort of the history of jewelry, the secrecy of the jewelry trade, the myths that we've all been sold about these stones and what's really valuable. These two books just gave me the threads I needed to tell the story. There's a character who basically does a lot of their actions and reactions according to the moon and to the zodiac. What is your relationship to astrology and what is your sign? I'm an Aries Ah. and my daughter is an Aries and my daughter is very into astrology. I'm not personally that into it, but I think when we are in times of stress or trouble, it's all of our instinct to look for answers outside of our everyday lives. You know, it's really comforting to think, oh, yeah, my flight was canceled because Mercury is in retrograde. (laughs) And that makes sense. You know, it just helps us feel like we can let go a little bit. And I think that's a useful impulse. Unfortunately, Celeste gets a little too caught up in it, you know, because it becomes an avoidance technique for her. Instead of making the hard decisions, 
She looks to her tarot card reader and she looks to astrology to make those decisions for her. Um, and that's something that she has to, to grapple with because sometimes making hard decisions for ourselves is really scary. As we conclude the conversation, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy guilt from and what organization would you like to amplify? Oh my goodness. East End Books in Provincetown is one of my favorite bookstores. It's the bookstore in the setting of guilt and also Main Point Books in Wayne, PA. Both of them have signed copies. Um, and right now I'm really hoping people continue to support World Central Kitchen mm -hmm. on the ground, doing such important work all around the world, um, but particularly in, in Ukraine. So uh, I've personally been you know, supporting them. I know a lot of authors have as well. And there's so much that needs work and fixing right now. I mean, the Sandy Hook promise. I mean, I'd love to see people support them. I, I, you know, it, there's, there's so much wrong that it's hard to know where to start. But these are the two problems that are keeping me awake at night. And the, that's the starting point. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie Brenner, for joining us to talk about guilt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well,